0: Hi, reader. I'm Cindy Burnett. Welcome to my award-winning podcast, Thoughts from a Page, which is a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. On the show, I chat with authors whose books I have enjoyed about their new releases, and I give you a peek behind the curtain of the publishing industry with my behind-the-scenes series. With so many books coming out weekly, it can be hard to decide what to read, so I find the best ones and share them with you. If you're looking for a community of readers, bonus content, and a chance to read books before they hit the shelves, I hope you'll consider joining my Patreon group, which is filled with a wonderful bunch of book lovers. The link to join is in the show notes. Do you love to be in the know about upcoming books? Kelly Hooker of at Kelly Hook reads books and I do too. We couldn't find a comprehensive list of titles all in one place, so we made one ourselves and now we're sharing it with you. Our literary lookbook is a list of 182 books releasing from January to May, 2024, curated for our communities. The link to buy it is in my show notes. Today, Kelly Hooker returns to chat with me about our favorite books of July through September of 2023. Kelly is an avid reader, reviewer, and bookstagrammer. She works very part time as a speech pathologist in Michigan and has three toddler boys. As a result, she firmly believes that nap time is for novels. She is an audiobook enthusiast and loves hosting her signature chapters and chats. She creates seasonal reading guides to help readers pick up the right book at the right time. I hope you enjoy our conversation. And now for a quick break. For the last year, I have been focusing more on my health and my eating habits. In connection with that, I have started drinking AG1 in the morning. I first gave AG1 a try because I needed more energy. Since drinking AG1 daily, I have definitely felt more energized. Not only does AG1 deliver my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre- and probiotics, and more, but it's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day. I know with AG1, I'm giving my body high-quality nutrition. Every batch of AG1 goes through a rigorous testing process, so you know it is safe. And AG1 ingredients are sourced for absorption, potency, and nutrient density. AG1 is the supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily, and I am really happy to have them sponsoring my show. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash thoughts from a page. That's drink A-G the number one dot com slash thoughts from a page. Check it out. Welcome, Kelly. How are you? I am doing well. How are you, Cindy? I'm good, and I feel like we have not had one of these episodes in a while. It's taken us a little bit of time to find a time to record our July
1: through September favorites, so I'm happy to chat. I am too. It feels fun to revisit some of these books that I read months ago because there are some really, really good ones. It
0: definitely was a great window of time for books. We decided on 12 and I had a hard time getting it narrowed down to 12.
1: I know. I feel like we say this every time, but (laughs) it's so true. So what's been
0: going on with you since we last chatted?
1: Well, I took my trip down to Houston to visit you, and we haven't chatted about that on the big show yet, but that was definitely a highlight of my fall. It was so, so amazing to meet you in person and to meet your family and to go to the literary salon and meet Alice Feeney. It was just just such a highlight of my year. It was a highlight of my
0: year, too. That was just so much fun, and I was thinking about it yesterday, actually, and I'm like, it already seems like it was so long ago, but we had the best time. And Alice Feeney was here. And then you and I did a bookstore tour
1: in Houston and you got to meet Catherine Center. So it was very author filled. It was. It just felt like the perfect getaway. We couldn't have, I don't know, I just couldn't have planned it better. It was so fun. I agree completely. And I'm very glad we got to do it. We'll have to do it again. Yes.
0: In the midst of all of that, we began talking about looking ahead to future reads. We both read ahead a decent amount and trying to determine which books are coming, how we know where they're coming, accumulating it all into one place. And you had a great idea.
1: Yes, so I had started a spreadsheet and I think you had your own system too. And you had reached out and said, hey, do you wanna just kind of join forces and put our list together? And I said, sure. And so I was putting our list together and I just posted on Instagram stories that I was working on organizing my 2024 reads. And I got so many messages from people saying like, hey, how do you find out what books are coming up? Or like, would you be willing to sell your list? And I was like, huh, that's an interesting idea. And so when I came to Houston, we got to just go down this huge research rabbit hole and called all of these publisher catalogs and NetGalley and found so many upcoming 2024 reads that we added to our list. And then we decided that we would get a little fancier and put them together in our literary lookbook. So that is what we're selling for $10. And there are over 180 titles from January through May that are from a variety of different publishers and a variety of different genres. And the books are organized by publication date. And there is a section that has all of the covers and then a list of all of the titles. So if you love to know, about what books are coming up and you don't have the time or energy to go through really hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books and select ones that you think might be good to read, the lookbook is going to be perfect for you. If you're a librarian or an author or work at a bookstore, review books, or you just like to be at the top of those library holds. I always get like a little boost of adrenaline. I feel like when I'm number one at the library. And so... The lookbook is going to be perfect for you. And it's $10 again, and you can purchase it through the shop page on Cindy's Patreon. And I'll put a link in the
0: show notes so that it's really easy to find. But we've been surprised at how incredibly popular it was. We put it out there thinking five or 10 people might be interested in this. And we've had such a wonderful response.
1: And we have already started compiling our list for the second part of the year. And we will launch our second literary lookbook in April 2024. So that will cover books through the second part of the year. And we are just having so much fun putting this second round together. I thought the whole thing was
0: so much fun. And you're just stellar at creating beautiful formats. So it looks so much better than if I had done it where it would look like a third grader had done it. <laughs> so it is beautifully formatted as
1: well. Oh, thank you. And it was such a fun project to collaborate on because we're always chatting like, oh, let's add this. Should we add this? Should we not? And so it's just been just the best hobby.
0: I agree. And I was so curious to see if somebody would say, oh my gosh, this is right here by done by so-and-so. And then we'd be like, oh, how did we not come across that? But instead, everybody's been like, this is fabulous. It is so nice to have it all in one place. So it made me feel better that we hadn't missed a source that was out there that we didn't know about
1: there's nothing like this out there that we have found. And just to have this resource all in one spot has been, I think, really helpful to people. It's helping me stay organized, too. I really appreciate it. I know. I'm
0: so thrilled about it. (laughs) Well, is there anything on that list that you've already read that you want to talk a little bit
1: about? Oh, yes. I recently read Mercury by Amy Jo Burns. She is the author of Shiner, which is a story that I absolutely loved. And that was her debut a few years ago. And so this is a long-awaited second novel. And it's a very different family story, character-driven. There's a little bit of mystery woven in. But it's so well done. And I believe it comes out January 2nd.
0: I'm excited for that. I'm participating in Celadon's readathon. I know you are, too. And yeah. I'm looking forward to getting it read and chatting about it with everybody in my group.
1: Yeah, I think you're going to love it. How about you? Any 2024 releases that you've already read and loved?
0: I read Family, Family by Lori Frankel, and I really liked it. It has to do with adoption and theater. So I just thought it was very well done. It was a thought-provoking book, but I read it pretty quickly and thoroughly enjoyed it. And I think it comes out January 9th.
1: I think you're right. I read and loved that one too. And I love that the author is an adoptive mother herself, and so it felt like a really authentic perspective. I agree completely.
0: So now we're going to dive into our favorites from July through September of 2023, books that came out in that window. And as always, we have a few overlaps. So we're going to do what we normally do, talk about the three overlaps first, and then dive into the ones that are on our individual lists. We're going to go by pub date. So why don't you start, Kelly, because you have the first one of the ones that we overlap on.
1: Sure. I'm going to kick us off with The River We Remember by William Kent Kruger. And William Kent Kruger is one of my favorite authors of all time. I think he's truly a masterful storyteller. The River We Remember is told over the course of the summer of 1958, when the body of a man unliked within this small community washes up on the banks of the Alabaster River in Jewell, Minnesota. So William Kent Kruger writes about the natural world in all of his stories, really, in such a visceral way. And in this story, I could vividly picture these mysterious waters of the Alabaster River that just held all of these small town secrets. He also writes coming-of-age stories with these character arcs that are so satisfying. His characters always have these formative events happen when they're kind of young boys on the precipice of manhood, and then... These events happen and it really propels them kind of into this next level of maturity. And they're never the same afterwards. So in this book, I thought it was so cool that we got to know really the entire small town. There's quite a large cast of characters. And so I did have to take notes as I read. But I do think he does a good job of reminding you of who the characters are as they reappear in the book. So I don't think notes are absolutely necessary, but it did help me out. So I think if you liked this Tenderland and Ordinary Grace, that this will be a win for you too.
0: I agree completely. And it's so interesting on the cast of characters because I read it pretty early and I didn't really think that, but then person after person has been saying that. So I guess for some reason, it just didn't stick with me that there were a lot of characters, but I've heard a lot of people say that, that it is helpful to keep up with them, make a list or just kind of make sure you're keeping them separate in your mind.
1: Yeah. And you got to interview him too. And he just seems like such a nice man. I agree. I just love chatting with
0: him. And he said that this story was inspired by his father's story coming home from World War II and that people always now romanticize that time period, that everybody was on the same page and that everything was just idyllic and the war was over and that it really wasn't like that at all. And so that's what he wanted to bring to the page. And I feel like he just really does provide a glimpse into whatever time period he's writing about this time, small town America in the late
1: 1950s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's he's just fantastic. So that was The River We Remember by William Kent Kruger. The next book that we both loved was The Six by Lauren Grush. This isn't a book that I would naturally be drawn to, but I got a hold of the audio and I decided to give it a try because I was in a nonfiction mood. Space typically terrifies me, like the vastness of the universe and pushing the limits of the unknown and just all of these infinite possibilities of things that could go horribly wrong (laughs) just make me feel so unsettled. But despite my fears, I decided to listen to this one, and I'm so glad I did. So this is the story of America's first female astronauts, and I am so glad that I got a glimpse into their life and careers. My prior knowledge about these women and their space missions was really next to nothing. But I was completely fascinated by their various backgrounds. They weren't all astronauts to begin with. You know, some were doctors and some were pilots and um, scientists. And their training before they went into space was really complex. And I had a great time learning about what it takes as a person and in your body to be able to prepare for such a mission. The most interesting part of the story for me was how the women's experience compared to their male counterparts. They were just treated differently. And um, since women had never been in space, there were so many logistics for things that you wouldn't even think about, just like going to the bathroom that are different for females in space than males. And so their suits, even there weren't small enough space suits. And so they had to be taking things like that into consideration. And ironically, when I was reading this, my husband was reading Rocket men um at the same time, which I know is a book that you loved, and I'm excited to read. So we just had some really fun space conversations that week, and this was just a nonfiction book that I completely loved. Reading about these brave women was just so cool. What did you think?
0: I loved it as well, and I forgot that you're scared of space. We talked about that when you were visiting, yeah. and I forgot because I'm the flip side. like I have always loved space, and if I didn't have such I don't know, such a weak stomach. I always thought, oh, it'd be great to be an astronaut, but I'm afraid getting twisted every which way, I'd never keep anything down. So (laughs) I ended up going a different direction, but I always thought it would be so cool to be an astronaut. And because I'm a little bit older too, I remember some of the events like Challenger, like my teacher was a semi-finalist for the first teacher to go up into space. And so we were watching it the day that it went down. So some of these things were things that I was reflecting back on. It kind of took me back to some of those times when the Columbia spaceship broke up. Those pieces yeah. actually ended up really near our ranch. So there were a lot of pieces that, you know, I could kind of fill together. Plus it's set in Houston because that's where they were all training.
1: Right. So
0: I just thought it was so well done. And it was very interesting to hear about the female perspective versus the male. And yes, Rocket Rocketman, I was already going to mention it. And so I'm glad you did. But it yeah. is a good companion piece to kind of put those two together.
1: Definitely. Definitely. I loved it. That was The Six by Lauren Grush.
0: So the third one that we overlapped on is Murder in the Family by Cara Hunter. This is British crime writer Cara Hunter's U.S. debut, and it was such a winner. It kept me engaged from beginning to end. Twenty years ago, Luke Ryder was murdered in the garden of his swanky London home, and the killer was never found. In the present day, his stepson, TV director Guy Howard, hopes to solve the case by revisiting the crime through a Netflix docudrama series entitled Infamous. I am always a huge fan of unique and clever formats, and this one most definitely is. Guy has assembled a panel of experts in various fields to sift through the evidence and hopefully solve the case. So their CVs are at the front, all these messages going back and forth between people are included throughout, and then it's also set in a unique structure divided by episodes and in a script format. So instead of just being like a traditional novel, the entire thing is done in script format with these other articles and text messages and reviews woven in. On top of it, there's a review about each episode at the end of each segment. So I just had so much fun poring over it. I will say it's one that I think audio definitely doesn't work from what I've been hearing from people. And even electronic reading would be kind of difficult unless you're very good at flipping back and forth, because I found I really had to be going back and forth, looking at documents, rethinking about what someone had said, trying to piece it all together. But I just thought it was so well done. And it's just going to be one of those stories that I'm recommending to everybody. What about you?
1: Yes, I liked how it was a fictional story. But then there were also true crime cases that were woven in. And I don't typically go down these true crime rabbit holes. But it was interesting that they took real cases and put them into this fictional case. I was highly entertained. I'm so glad that you told me about this one. And I definitely think it's one that would be fun to buddy read because after I read it and was talking with a few other friends, we picked up on different things. And I think the ending too, you're like, wait, what? And so it, it's fun to talk about an ending that just kind of leaves you reeling a little bit.
0: I agree. And I think that each person that's there is there for a reason. And as you slowly are uncovering some of that, you're like, whoa, like she really just did a phenomenal job of weaving it all together.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: And so that's Murder in the Family by Cara Hunter. So now, why don't we talk about the nine that we each have on our own list? Do you want to start with yours?
1: Sure. I'll start with One Summer in Savannah by Tara Shelton Harris. This is a really fantastic book by a debut author. We hosted Tara for our Chapters and Chats book club, and she shared that her purpose for writing this book was to challenge readers about what acts they consider worthy of forgiveness. So I really think One Summer in Savannah achieves that. The story follows Sarah, who was raped by a man when she was 18 years old. Her perpetrator is from a prominent family in their town, but he was convicted and sentenced to jail. And he knows nothing about the baby that Sarah conceived as a result of this sexual assault. So this is true information that I was not aware of that Tara shared with us. But Georgia has a law that biological parents of children born from a sexual assault actually have parental rights. So you could be raped by somebody and that person would have rights to the child that you conceived. Oh, my gosh. Yes, this is true. So Sarah flees to Maine seeking safety for her little girl because Maine does have laws that prohibit parental rights in circumstances of rape. But she returns later to Savannah back to her hometown to be with her dying father. Back in Savannah, she meets unexpected people who challenge what she believes about forgiveness and grief. So this book has a great Southern setting and a bookstore to adore. I just think that there's so much to appreciate about this novel. It's a really unique love story that is as thought-provoking as it is emotional. The writing is poetic, literally, because one of the characters only speaks in poems, which was an interesting choice, but I think it really worked and it's woven throughout the dialogue really well. I also think the story flows seamlessly as it explores a ton of timely themes, including consent, the court of public opinion, and new beginnings. We had such an amazing book club chat because there really is so much to unpack here with this story. It's redemptive, and it's heartfelt, and it's so worth a read. And that was One Summer in Savannah by Tara Shelton-Harris. I've heard great things about that one, but I haven't read it. Yeah, it's, it's heavy, but it's beautiful. What's next for you?
0: My first book is The Bitter Past by Bruce Borges. After retiring from an Army Intelligence Division, Porter Beck has returned home to take on the role as Sheriff of Lincoln County, which is located in the high desert of Nevada, north of Las Vegas. When a retired FBI agent is killed, the normally sleepy area suddenly springs to life as FBI agents arrive, and a mystery from 60 years ago, when a Russian KGB agent came to pilfer the United States nuclear technology, appears to be linked to the recent death, toggling back and forth in time. The Bitter Past, the first in a new mystery series, is an enthralling read. The nuclear testing site storyline, the FBI aspects of the story, and the ending make this an all-around fabulous read. I am not too often surprised by twists and turns and mysteries. I guess I just read so many of them and have for a long time. But I got to the end and I was like, oh my gosh, I did not see that coming, but it was so well done. So you can't ask for more with a mystery. I just thought that was spectacular. And I'm so excited because book two will be coming out this coming July. It's entitled Shades of Mercy. So you have plenty of time to read book one and be ready to go for book two. But I just love mysteries that weave in history as well as having, you know, a solid mystery plot, because a lot of times the mystery is the sole focus of a book and character development doesn't matter as much. And, you know, they're just kind of working through that. But I felt that you really got to know Porter Beck and his family and also all of this history that happened, all the, the testing, the nuclear testing that they did in Nevada and the literal fallout from it. It was just completely fascinating to me. And that is The Bitter Past by Bruce Borges.
1: Yeah, that's a topic that I haven't read much about at all. And it sounds really interesting that he made that into a mystery. Definitely. And, you know,
0: when they started all of that, they had no idea what the true fallout would be. And so when I interviewed him, we were talking about how there would be all this dust from the bombs that would land on their cars and on their homes and kids would be like playing, like writing in it. And, you know, and people had no idea how harmful all of that was and how long it remained in the air. So Mm -hmm. it was just really interesting to like, visit the facility and the story and see how things played out. And then the mystery itself was spectacular.
1: Good. I'm glad you enjoyed that. What's up next for you? Strange Sally Diamond by Liz Nugent. This is a quirky and dark mystery that will be one of my favorites of the year. Sally Diamond is reclusive and just really a unique character. And she takes her father's request to throw him out with the rubbish when he dies, quite literally. Her actions, ignite this huge media storm and thrust her into a spotlight that she is entirely unprepared for. While in the spotlight, this opens up an unwanted door to her past trauma, and the story takes off from there. I think that it's best to go in blind to this book, but you should be aware that there are many, many trigger warnings, so please check those first. What's done really well are the quirky characters that capture your heart as well as the comic relief that's woven into the story that does have a lot of disturbing aspects. But despite that, it still has a light tone to it. I also loved how neurodivergence and mental health are portrayed respectfully and with great sensitivity. So despite the heavy themes, the story isn't devoid of hope and readers who enjoy the found family trope will especially appreciate this one. I also wanted to mention that there are two separate endings. The difference on the page is quite subtle, but emotionally, I think it makes a big difference. So without spoilers, I'll say the UK ending is more melancholy and depressing, whereas the US ending has a bit of a lighter tone. You won't soon forget Strange Sally Diamond by Liz Nugent. I have been so back and forth on whether to read this book. I even bought it. But then I see
0: people's trigger warnings and I'm like, I am way too wimpy. I think I'm just going to have to pass on it. But so many people have been raving about it.
1: I know. I do think it's a tough one maybe for you because there is a trigger warning for pedophilia. So that could be off-putting to many readers. But I do think that there are some heartwarming aspects to the story too. But you you just got to know yourself. Oh, absolutely. And I don't think there's
0: anything wrong with being able to stomach all of that. I'm just so wimpy that I can't. So but people have been raving about it. So definitely it seems like it will be a top read for many people this year.
1: Yep, I think
0: so. And now for a quick break to take a moment and thank today's sponsor, Air Doctor. Americans spend an average of 90% of their time indoors and take approximately 20,000 breaths a day. According to the EPA, indoor air is two to five times more polluted than outdoor air, and in some cases, even up to 100 times more polluted. I struggle with allergies myself that poor air quality exacerbates, and so using my air purifier from Air Doctor really helps me manage my allergies. So what's the solution to poor air quality? Air Doctor has introduced an air purifier that has captured the attention of established media outlets such as CNN, money, and more. Air Doctor filters out 99.99% of dangerous contaminants and allergens such as pollen, pet dander, dust mite, mold, and even bacteria and viruses, so your lungs don't have to. All Air Doctor purifiers also feature Whisperjet fans, 30% quieter than ordinary air purifiers. Want to breathe better? Head to airdoctorpro.com and use promo code thoughtsfromapage, and depending on the model, you'll receive up to 39% off or up to $300 off. Exclusive to podcast customers, you will also receive a free 3 year warranty on any unit, which is an additional $84 value. Lock in this special offer by going to A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O dot and use promo code thoughts from a page. Air Doctor also comes with a 30 day money back guarantee. So if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund minus the shipping. And now back to the rest of the show. OK, what do you have? I have another mystery. I feel like maybe I'm a little mystery heavy this time, but there have been so many good ones coming out. So it's The Last Ranger by Peter Heller. So this is a compelling mystery that is set in Yellowstone National Park, and there's a skirmish between a local hunter and a wolf biologist, which turns violent. And then this park ranger, Wren, is facing his own demons as well as he tries to figure out exactly what happened. So Wren is a park ranger in Yellowstone tasked with the duties that are both mundane and thrilling. He has to break up fights at campgrounds, save tourists from moose attacks, and attempt to broker an uneasy peace between the wealthy vacationers who troop around with cameras and the locals who want to carve out their own meaningful life here in this beautiful landscape. When he discovers that his friend Hilly, a biologist and wolf expert, nearly died in the steel jaws of a wolf trap, he hopes it's just an accident. But as things begin to unfold, he realizes that something more menacing is at play. So Heller is a poet, and his writing is just so lyrical. It's a little bit like when we were talking about William Kent Kruger, Heller's ability to just make you feel like you were standing there in Yellowstone, envisioning the wolves, the flowers, the water running, the fishing, like he just drops you right in the middle of all of it. It's not a fast paced story. And I have seen some people talking about how it's more character and less fast paced. And I do agree with that. But it's beautiful. I'm completely fascinated with the wolves and that is on my bucket list to get to Yellowstone and actually see the wolves in person. But ever since I read American Wolf and then the one by Charlotte McGonaghy, Once There Were Wolves, I am just obsessed with this wolf community and what they've done as they have returned to Yellowstone. And so this story takes off from there, but goes in a different direction, which kind of surprised me, but in a good way. And I feel like, On top of the issue of the wolves and everything that that has returned to Yellowstone, he also brings in some other very timely topics that I don't want to spoil. The other thing that's interesting is we're huge national park people. And so as he talks about Ren's everyday job and the things he has to do, like save people from getting too close to a moose or to quit parking on the side of the road, we spend so much time in Rocky Mountain every summer and we just see people doing the same stupid things over and over again. And I comment to the Rangers, like, do you not get so tired of having to be like, come on, folks, like, you know, let's get it together. And so it was just interesting to see Red dealing with those things on the page. I even said that to Peter Heller when I was interviewing him that I felt like our summer had been brought to life because I see that happen so often in Rocky Mountain.
1: I think this would make a perfect summer road trip book. Like, if you're going out to a national park, just pop this in as an audiobook. I think that would be so fun. I agree. And he wanted to
0: read a passage when I interviewed him. And usually authors don't do that. And I was like, okay, but he did such a beautiful job. I mean, he has this like deep, vibrant voice and the way his writing is so poetic. I just thought it was fascinating to listen to him read. So then I was glad that he'd done that. I think so too. And that's The Last Ranger by Peter Heller.
1: Okay, next for me is An Honest Man by Michael Carita. I'll start by saying that I absolutely love an under the radar gem. And I really haven't seen this one around Bookstagram much. Renee from Book Talk, Etc. podcast, she consistently finds these fantastic mysteries and thrillers that I've never heard of before. And she brought this one to the podcast. And when I traveled to visit you in Houston, I saw an honest man on the shelves at Murder by the Book. So I thought, okay, I better pick this up. And I'm really, really glad I did. The book starts off with a powerful opening scene. A man on the shore sees a lavish yacht floating aimlessly in the bay, and on board are a slew of murdered victims. So we immediately, as a reader, are asking, who are these people? Who wanted them dead? Are there any survivors? And the story goes on to explore these questions. I thought this was a really compelling mystery, and it was filled with some really interesting family dynamics. There's a lot of father-son Dynamics, which I thought brought some interesting family drama to the page. I also loved the coastal small town setting and really the detectives and characters trying to solve the case had some fun dialogue and were really well developed. I can see this maybe being made into a series. I don't know if it's going that direction, but I just wanted more from the lives of these characters. This was my first book by Michael Carita, and it definitely won't be my last. He has a pretty extensive backlist that I'm excited to dive into. And that was An Honest Man by Michael Carita.
0: I remember when you bought that one. And Michael Carita always makes me think of Murder by the Book, where I used to work, because that's the only place I've ever seen his books. A couple of the people that worked there loved him. And so we sold a decent number of his stories, and I never read any of them. But I really need to add this one to my list and see what I think.
1: I think you'll like it. It's not too gruesome or gory, and there's a lot of layers to the mystery. Definitely not a popcorn thriller, just
0: a really good read. You know I always like those so much better when there's depth to a story.
1: hmm Exactly.
0: Okay, so my next one is The Bookbinder by Pip Williams. As a lover of literature, I found this historical novel utterly engaging. Williams blends fact and fiction while celebrating words, books themselves, and the power of the written word. The story is set in Oxford, amidst the backdrop of World War I, as men are slowly drafted and recruited to fight. Since age 12, twin sisters Peggy and Maude Jones have worked as bindery girls at Oxford University's Clarendon Press, where they bind the books but are explicitly told you cannot read them, you just have to bind them. As the war rages, Peggy is wrapped into a secret project as well as volunteering with wounded soldiers, both of which open up her very limited world. The true beauty of the book is how Williams captures this historical period from a woman's perspective, the unprecedented and catastrophic impact of the war and the arrival of the Spanish flu. I knew nothing about bookbinding, and she really brought that to the page in such a fascinating manner that I just wanted to learn more. She's done these great videos on her website where she actually binds several books and what that looks like. She also has done a walking tour around Oxford. So if you have time to check out her website, she really provides all this additional information that backs up this beautiful story. And also, it's interesting to contemplate the war from the perspective of those people left behind. So as all of these men are leaving and heading out to fight, the people that are left behind are really struggling as well and what that looks like and the different roles they take on. I just absolutely loved it. I was completely invested in the characters and their lives and was delighted with the focus on words and books, which are at the heart of the tale. We're going to London soon for our anniversary, and we're going to visit Oxford for the first time. And between this book and Patty Callahan Henry's Once Upon a Wardrobe, I have a long list of things to see in Oxford. And that is The Bookbinder by Pip Williams.
1: Wow. I just love a historical fiction book that teaches you something new or brings a new perspective to a topic that's been written about a lot already. And this sounds like that does it really well. It definitely
0: does. And it was just a window into something that I knew absolutely nothing about. And I loved that. Mm-hmm, definitely.
1: Okay, the next for me is The Many Lives of Mama Love by Lara Love Hardin. Laura is a writer and literary agent, and she is best known perhaps for being the ghostwriter of one of my all-time favorite memoirs, The Sun Does Shine, which is the memoir of Anthony Ray Hinton. He is a man who was wrongfully convicted of murder and was on death row before DNA evidence exonerated him. Now, Laura has a story of her own to share in her courageous memoir that will be one of my favorites of the year. Laura was once an affluent suburban soccer mom in California who was convicted of 32 felonies for stealing credit cards to fund her opioid addiction. Laura is the mom to four boys, and she was arrested in her home in front of her son, who was, I believe, only four years old at the time. Laura recounts her time in prison away from her children, the relationships that she made while incarcerated, and the incredible second chance at life she reclaimed upon her release. After she was released from prison, she advocated for other women who were seeking housing and employment. And she really shines a light on how difficult the system is for people to find success after incarceration. She shares the barriers to becoming productive members of society. And she said this, which really stuck with me. She said, the system is cobbled together out of catch-22s. Like there were just so many places that you were expected to be at the same time, but then you would miss somewhere else that you were required to be, and it would just throw a wrench into things. And so that was really interesting to me. This is a tough memoir to read because she initially doesn't make herself very endearing to the reader. She has made mistakes that she would describe as selfish and unlikable. And, you know, as the author, she can decide to show herself in whatever light she wants to be portrayed. So I think it's really brave to be publicly vulnerable about the worst choices that you've ever made. And what she does so well is explore the themes of shame and forgiveness but she does it with wit and tenderness. And her life becomes so much more than her past. As she gets to meet Oprah, she meditates with the Dalai Lama, and then she has dinner with the Archbishop Desmond Tutu. You're just going to root for Laura as she becomes this best-selling author, ghostwriter, and she just proves that stories have the power to heal and that we're all more than our worst mistake. Laura is joining our Chapters and Chats book club tomorrow, actually. Well, when we record, it will have been completed. But I just cannot wait to hear from her and hear more of her story. And that was The Many Lives of Mama Love by Lara Love Hardin.
0: I still need to read that one. And as I'm listening to you, I'm realizing you totally lead me into my next one because my book is The Connellys of County Down by Tracy Lang, yeah, which deals with somebody who's just gotten out of prison and what that's like and the limited choices they have. So I had never really connected those two. No, me either. <laughs> So fans of Lang's debut, We Are the Brennans, will revel in her standalone sophomore outing, The Connellys of County Down. I'm always a little anxious to read the second book by an author when I've loved their first book because, one, people have forever to write their first book, and their second book often has to be written in a much shorter time frame. But also, if you've loved the first one, you're going to inevitably compare it to the second one. But I thought that her second book was even better than her first. I just loved it. I love these type of family sagas that aren't just overly grim. There's a lot of substance and depth to them, but, you know, everybody is not dying and having abuse problems and all these other things. So I just love these that are still have a lot to them, but they're not so grim that you just finish reading and you're like, oh my gosh. So this is that type of book. The three Connolly siblings, Geraldine, Eddie, and Tara, lost their parents when they were young and life has not been easy for them since. When Tara is released from prison and returns home to live with Geraldine and Eddie, she upsets the uneasy equilibrium that her siblings had reached while she was gone things aren't quite what they seem for any of the three of them. And as secrets are slowly unveiled, the siblings struggle to keep their family together. I had not read a book when someone was getting out of prison and all that that entailed and just what you were describing with Mama Love, all the different appointments you have and the restrictions on your freedom and a variety of those things, what it's like to try to get a job, all of that. So it was really interesting to see how that played out. I interviewed Tracy about the book and she said that, That was part that her editor had her beef up a little bit, the parole officer, and trying to understand what that looks like because that isn't something people read about as often. But one of my favorite parts of the story was how Tara got this job with these gamers as a graphic designer, and they're trying to create this game out of their home, and the moms are there, and she's coming in and helping them do all of this graphic design. Like, I just loved that part of the story. I just felt there were a lot of sweet touches. Some characters are more likable than others, and it's kind of easy to see where one part of the story is going, but I just thought it was fabulous. I thoroughly enjoyed the sibling dynamics, and I'm a huge fan of her writing and characters. So if you love family dramas and solid character development, I think this would be a great fit. And that's The Connellys of County Down by Tracy Lang.
1: I really enjoyed this one, too. My favorite aspect was how she portrayed living life following a head injury and just some of the ongoing effects that that can have on somebody's quality of life and their just day-to-day living. And I used to work with adults that had head injuries. And so that really resonated with me. I agree. I thought that she handled that very well. Mm -hmm. I think so. Next for me is Good Bad Girl by Alice Feeney. This book was special for me because I was able to meet Alice, like I mentioned, at your literary salon in Houston, and it was my very first book event ever. And I got a signed book from her, which I've never had before either. So that made it extra fun. One of the things that I love most about Alice Feeney is that she never fails to surprise me. Each one of her books feels distinct, and I appreciate that she isn't afraid to try something new. Her books never feel formulaic to me. Good Bad Girl takes Feeney's signature cleverness into domestic suspense territory, and she explores mother-daughter relationships with a cold case kidnapping of a child and murders within a nursing home. The story doesn't have the same page-turning thrills of her previous books, but it does have fully developed characters and a really thoughtful portrayal of postpartum depression. Alice Feeney challenges readers to consider what it means to be a quote-unquote good mother. And I'm always drawn to stories of motherhood. So I really liked that she went there. This book reminded me a little bit of Sally Hepworth's books, kind of that same, same tone. And so I think that if you've liked Sally Hepworth's books in the past, that you'll like this one as well. That was Good Bad Girl by Alice
0: Feeney. So I have two things to say about the Alice Feeney event. One, she was absolutely hysterical. Like I would have never dreamt based on what she writes and how dark some of her books get, how funny she would be. I mean, she was just so engaging and we still had people telling us, oh my gosh, that event was absolutely hysterical. Yes. And then the second part was how much effort you and I went to. You so nicely helped me so we could record that. So it could be a live event on my podcast. (laughs) And then we were all set. We'd spent all this time getting it ready. And then my phone somehow got too close to the computer and overrode all our settings. And so all the interviews sounded like was wah-wah, wah-wah, wah-wah. So I was like, ah. Oh. So every time we mentioned that event, I just, again, cringe and think that would have been such a great interview.
1: <laughs> she had this like dry wit about her. She was so funny and understated. One of the things that was most interesting to me about that interview, too, is she said that nobody reads her books until they're done. Like she doesn't have anybody look at them and she just hands them over to her her husband as her first reader. And he was kind of like shocked and horrified the first time and was like, what have you written? You know, he had no idea that she had that dark side thriller author in her. So I thought that was really funny. I agree. And that they're willing to just take the risk that
0: she's going to write a book that everybody loves. So nobody sees it until she hands it to her agent when it's completely done. And then talking about her husband being like, "Whoa." When she talked about the audiobook narrator and the producer who was sitting in the booth with her while the audiobook narrator was in the actual booth recording, and he kept inching the chair farther and farther and farther from her as the book got darker and darker, and he's like, you wrote this? And she'd nod and smile. I just love that story.
1: <laughs> yeah, she was so charming. I adored her, and that event was so fun. I agree.
0: My next one is The Great Transition by Nick Fuller-Gugans. First, I will say that I categorize this one as a climate utopia versus a climate dystopia. I think people get turned off by all of this super grim climate fiction. I, for one, actually love it because I really enjoy seeing how authors handle different things and what they think is going to happen in the future. But I think the way Nick approaches it, that he has what he calls the great transition, and humans have managed to reach net carbon emissions and find a way to live on the planet successfully, even as climate change has altered the world we know. So I always want to kind of say that up front, like it's, it's not a negative book. Like I feel like there's actually a lot of hope in it and it's a super engaging story. So I just don't want people to be put off by the climate fiction part of it. But it's set in the future when climate change has drastically altered the landscape of Earth. Emmy and her parents, Larch and Christina, reside in Nuke, Greenland, after most of the United States is left to rewild following the Great Transition, which is a time when a movement of people banded together to save the planet and ensure that it remained habitable. When Emmy's mom goes missing and a dozen climate criminals are brazenly murdered, Emmy and Larch head out in search of Christina as they realize they may not know everything about her present day activities. The story grabbed me from page one, and I absolutely loved his vision of what was going to happen in the future, as well as references to the golden oldies, such as Taylor Swift and U2, (laughs) and the vivid descriptions of what New York may look like in the future. Told through several points of view, as well as Emmy's school essays and alternating between the past and present, this stellar and hopeful debut is outstanding. I'm always a fan of unique storytelling, and using Emmy's class essays with the teacher feedback was a really clever way to bring in all sorts of details about what had happened in the past, what she was wrestling with, and what her parents were wrestling with. I think that he makes such a good point that when you haven't lived through something yourself, which I think we see sometimes with like, the wars, and then the people who come after the wars, that you can't really envision what that time period is like. And so there's this kind of push and pull between the people who did survive it, not wanting to have to explain how horrible it was, but also they feel you know, so lucky for you that you didn't have to live through it. And I feel like that's what's happening here. There's this tension between Emmy and her parents because they don't want to have to relay all of these horrible things they lived through until they got to a more positive time. But then she doesn't really understand it because they don't relay it to her. So it's just this kind of tension. And I I thought that was really thought provoking. I've thought about it a lot since then, especially having three kids and what we decide to share and what we don't. And that was The Great Transition by Nick fuller Guggens.
1: I love the way you described that book. I really enjoyed it, too. And I especially enjoyed our conversation that you hosted with Nick for the Patreon Early Reads Program. I think he was so entertaining to hear from. He's a teacher and I think that brought a unique perspective to the book, but I just really, really loved our um, time that we got to be with him on Zoom for the Early Reads Program. It was awesome. I agree. He is just delightful. And
0: I'd already had all the early reads scheduled and I really get along well with his publicist. And she reached out and she's like, okay, I have this book that you're gonna wanna squeeze in even though you're already booked up. And so I read it and I was like, you're right, I actually do. And so I was so glad we did that. We had a great response from the group. And then he is just fabulous, like talking with him about everything and how he came up with the ideas and how we wrote it. And then it's been fun to see some of the people who participated in that see him out in bookstores after the book came out, you know, going to visit him. He's doing some kind of giveaway, I think. If you donate a little bit of money to a charity, then he will send you a bunch of stickers from the book. And um, he's super engaging. And, You know, the other thing that's interesting to me is there is a portion of the book where some assassinations happen, and that seemed to kind of rile up a couple people, which I found so strange because I felt like terrorism is a part of the world that we live in. Nobody sanctioned the terrorism in the book, but I feel like it's not like it's that unusual. And so it was just interesting to me that that stuck out to people.
1: Yeah, I think it's awful and has always been a part of history. And because we're human, we'll continue to be a part of history. And so it made sense to me that it was included. Absolutely. And yes, I definitely wasn't sanctioning it and being like, yay, go
0: assassinate these people. But on the other hand, it just seemed like it's a normal part of our world and it wasn't handled in a graphic way or anything like that. I mean, it just sort of seemed to be in tune with what's been happening since the beginning of time. Agreed. What's next for you?
1: Next for me is another debut. It's Shark Heart by Emily Haybeck. If you told me that I would become wholeheartedly invested in the story about a man who turns into a shark, I just wouldn't have believed you. <laughs> Sharkheart was the bizarrely beautiful book I never knew that I needed. It will be a top read of the year for me. I just am in love with this book. So the story is told in alternating timelines and follows newlyweds Ren and Lucas as Lucas receives the devastating diagnosis that he will slowly transform into a great white shark. The plot was entirely implausible, and I have no idea how it worked for me, but I could not tear myself away from these pages. The premise didn't come across as gimmicky at all. The book is set in the same world that we live in now. The only one difference is that this disease exists where people can change into a shark, for example. So it wasn't like this had was unheard of. You know, it was sad for Lucas and Wren, but it was something that had existed in the world. So I like the way that it was portrayed. It's such a layered story that explores the nuances of change. And it was just really so much more than I expected. It talks about the lengths that we go for the people that we love, and then also touches on how we can grieve the loss of someone, even while they are still physically present. The writing was stunning, the structure was unique, and the themes of love and loss in various forms really shined bright. I think that Emily Hayback took a very bold chance on this imaginative premise, and I think it really paid off. We hosted Emily last month for our Chapters and Chats book club, and I asked her, how on earth did you come up with this premise? This is crazy to me. And she really had no idea. But she did mention that with her background in theater, that it felt more natural for her to write a story like a play script, which she did. And that was really unique. And so I just loved her. I'm rooting for her. And I can't wait to see where she goes from here. And that was Shark Heart by Emily Haybeck.
0: And you mentioned chapters and chats again. And I want to make sure people know how to sign up for those if they want to participate. Will you tell everybody really quickly?
1: Yes. So you can message me on Instagram at Kelly Hook Reads Books, and I can add you to any of our upcoming chats. On the top of my profile, I have our upcoming chats that we've confirmed pinned to the top so you can see what's up and coming. You can always comment on that post as well if you would like to join. And if you don't have Instagram, that's fine. You can just send me an email at kellyhook.readsbooks at gmail.com and then I can send you the Zoom link and be sure that you're included.
0: Perfect because there's so much fun to participate in. So I just want to make sure if people wanted to be added, they knew how to do it.
1: Absolutely. The more the merrier. It's free. It's so fun. Even if you can't make the date of the chat, we record all of these author chats and so they're posted to our YouTube channel after the fact. And so if you just let me know you're interested, even if you can't make the chat date, you'll still have access to that recording. Perfect. Yeah, thanks.
0: So my next one is kind of out of left field, but I thought it was such a fascinating and quick read, and it's Disneyland on the Mountain by Greg Glasgow and Catherine Mayer. So this under-the-radar book is a quick but very compelling read. It's nonfiction. It has to do with when Walt Disney tried to create a ski resort, something I knew absolutely nothing about. He wanted to create a vacation destination where guests could ski ice skate, and be entertained by a Disney Imagineer-created band of audio animatronic bears. Do they sound familiar? In the summer, visitors could fish, camp, hike, or take a scenic chairlift ride to the top of the mountain. And the place that they decided to try to set this was called Mineral King Resort in Southern California, and it was Disney's final passion project. So this is set in the time period between when Disneyland had opened, but before Disney World was opening. Disney World had a hardly even Begun. Like they had started talking about it, but this was kind of in between the two. So there was one major obstacle to his dream, and that was the growing environmental movement of the 1960s. In Disneyland on the Mountain, they provide an unprecedented look into the Mineral King saga, from its origins at the 1960 Winter Olympics to the years long environmental fight that eventually shut the development down. The fight, which went all the way to the Supreme Court, reshaped the environmental movement and helped to put in place long reaching laws to protect nature. Although the court battle, Coupled with Walt's death in 1966 meant the end for the Mineral King Resort, the ideas and planning behind it have permeated throughout the Walt Disney Company and the ski tourism industry in ways that are still seen today. So the bears that I was mentioning are part of the Country Bear Jamboree because when Mineral King didn't open, they'd already created these bears and they had to have a place to put them. So they ended up putting them at Walt Disney World. And I grew up going to that all the time. So it was just kind of an interesting bit of trivia to learn. but also. They do such a great job of placing this in the history of both the Walt Disney Company, but also what's happening in the country in terms of the environmental movement and other things. Like I had no idea that Walt was the one that kind of launched the large pageantry that we now have for Winter Olympic ceremonies opening because he was tasked with creating it for the 1960 Olympics. So that then kind of launched a whole new path of these very elaborate opening ceremonies. I did not know that. And also I did not know he was such an environmentalist. I forgot about some of his documentaries and different things that, you know, came into American homes at the time, talking about how important it is to preserve outdoor spaces and animals and all of that. So I just felt like I learned so much. This book was timed with coming out with the 100th anniversary of Disney. And obviously Disney's had a lot of drama in recent years or really the last year or two. It's interesting to see that they have dealt with that type of stuff in the past. So I just felt like all the way around. This is a very intriguing book. A super quick read. And there was one other part because what happened is part of the reason that the environmentalists won was that part of the land that they would have to use to allow people to get to Mineral King went through Sequoia National Park. And so they were gonna have to get a easement from the park and allow people to be coming and going all the time from Mineral King. And we had just been to Sequoia like a year and a half ago. And so it was interesting to kind of put that into place. And that land, I think it was like federal land, but maybe it wasn't completely part of the park yet. And as a result of all of this, it became part of Sequoia National Park, which I love to hear. And then also how much he impacted future ski resorts, like what you see now in Colorado, Breckenridge, those type of places, prior to trying to build Mineral King. Ski resorts were very basic, and they weren't geared to the family, and they weren't geared to really anything but just going straight down the mountain. And he just revolutionized all of that. It's just very interesting, all of the different aspects that came out of this case. And that is Disneyland on the Mountain by Greg Glasgow and Katherine Mayer.
1: That is fascinating. I knew about absolutely none of that before. And I think that is so interesting. I'm glad that you brought that up. I haven't seen that anywhere besides you on the podcast, but that sounds really great. It's a smaller publisher. And so I don't usually deal that much with them, but
0: I deal with an outside publicist who had pitched it to me huge Disney people in my family. So I was like, oh, I don't even know anything about this. But then once you read it, it's so much more widespread than Disney. And like I said, it is small and it is quick. So I think it'd make a great gift at the holidays
1: too. Oh, yeah. That's great. It sounds like one that would be universally appreciated. I
0: think so. So
1: what's up next for you? The Other Year by Rhea Fry. This story confronts readers with the question, what if one simple moment could change life as you know it? This is a sliding doors type story following a mother who experiences the tragic drowning of her young daughter in one timeline. And then in another timeline, her daughter is alive and well. So she's at the beach. um, She just looks down for one second. She picks up her head and then her daughter is nowhere to be found. And again, in one timeline, her daughter pops right up and the other, it ends in tragedy. Rhea Fry touches on some really deep-rooted fears shared by many parents. The story explores themes of guilt, complex relationships, and debilitating grief so well. It did feel heavy at times, but then you switch to the alternate timeline where the relationships and dynamics are different, and so everything was right in the world, and you can carry on, and so it didn't feel like you were stuck in one sad spot for too long. And so I really liked how she played around with the two timelines. I thought it was very creative. The other thing that was great about this story was the audio book. It's narrated by Carissa Vacker. And I could put the book down like mid timeline, so mid chapter. And when I picked it back up to listen to it, I could immediately discern which timeline that we were in based on Carissa's intonation and the tone. So I felt like it was really it just added so much emotion to the story hearing it done through the audiobook. And as I was reading this, I posted about it in my Instagram stories and Ria actually sent me a voice message on Instagram direct messages just kind of generally saying what she was trying to do as the author and sharing some of her perspective. And I just thought that was so thoughtful. I've never had an author reach out like that and just say like, "Hey, thanks for reading. Like, here's what I was trying to do." So the other year is a story that is incredibly thought-provoking, and I think it's going to make for a really great book club discussion. Rhea's joining us for chapters and chats in December. I can't wait to hear from her. She seems so warm and interesting. So reach out to me if you would like to join us. That was The Other Year by Rhea Fry.
0: That one sounds so heavy. I know it alternates between heavy and, and not so heavy, but I just feel like the loss of a child is so hard to read about
1: you're not wrong. You're not wrong. You definitely get into your feelings on this one. But I always like to consider stories like that, explore the the path not taken in life or what if. And so for me, that really stands out and gets me thinking. And I appreciate that.
0: Absolutely. And it definitely seems like people are receiving that book really well. I think so, too. I'm all like, that's too dark. That's too scary. That's too <laughs> sad. <laughs> I'm a wimp, clearly.
1: (laughs) No, you're just tenderhearted. That's good. That's a good quality.
0: I don't know. (laughs) So my next one is The Last Devil to Die by Richard Osman, a book I'm sure no one has heard about. (laughs) (laughs) After my last book, which no one has really heard about, I feel like everyone (laughs) on the planet knows this series. So this is the fourth in the Thursday Murder Club series, and shocking news reaches the Thursday Murder Club. An old friend in the antiques business has been killed, and a dangerous package he was protecting has gone missing. As the gang springs into action, they encounter art forgers, online fraudsters, and drug dealers, as well as heartache close to home. With the body count rising, the package still missing, and trouble firmly on their tail has their luck finally run out, and who will be the last devil to die? I love this series so very much, and this one is by far the best in the series. I've enjoyed them all. To me, book three was probably the weakest, but I still enjoyed it. But book two was outstanding, and this one is even better. Like I just put it away. Tears in my eyes. It's just so well done. There's definitely a heavier story in this one, so talking about heavy versus light. And that part was very sad, but I thought he handled it so well. There had been so much talk about that he'd signed on for books like five through seven, maybe in the last year and a half. But in his acknowledgments, he mentions that he is done with this series for now, that he is going to start writing a different series, and that he hopes to return to this at some point. So I know everybody's a bit heartbroken because they love these four characters and following everything that they do, but I'll be really curious to see where he goes next. The other thing that I thought was absolutely intriguing about this is that I went on Goodreads while we were getting ready for this conversation, and the book has over 38,000 people have rated, not just reviewed, but rated, And the rating is a 4.58. I'm not sure I've ever seen that high a number on a book when it has been out for a while, especially with that many ratings. I mean, that's pretty phenomenal. That is unheard of. It is unheard of. So I thought that was pretty amazing. And then on top of it, the series has spawned all sorts of geriatric sleuth stories, which I am here for. Like, (laughs) I love them. So I feel like that that has been wonderful that it has done so well that it has been able to allow all these other people to write stories that are not similar, but have the same kind of basic older people that the story focuses around. And I love that. Mm -hmm. I hope that he will one day return to these. And that is The Last Devil to Die by Richard Osman.
1: So this series, the first book was one that just kind of missed me when it first came out and I never got back to it. But just for my local book club, it is our January pick. And so I think I'm going to read it over the holidays. And I'm so excited just to get into this series and knowing that the books continue to get um, really great makes me excited.
0: Oh, that's awesome. My book club read it a few years ago. The first one kind of when it was slowly picking up steam, because it's one of those books that they didn't expect that it would be this huge phenomenon that it's been. And it just kind of kept selling and kept selling and kept selling. And I love those type of stories, too. Mm -hmm, Me, too. Oh, I can't wait to hear what you think.
1: Great. I will report back. Next for me is Happiness Falls by Angie Kim. It's not every day that I get to read about stories that feature speech pathology. I am a pediatric speech pathologist who works very, very part time right now at this stage of my life, but it's a big passion of mine. And this book really captured my heart. Happiness Falls is a family drama that follows Eugene and Eugene has Angelman syndrome. So he's nonverbal but he has vital information about his father's disappearance that his family and authorities desperately try to extract from him i have worked with a few kids at the children's hospital with angelman syndrome and one of the interesting things about this syndrome is people smile constantly and so they appear so joyful and so full of good joyous energy but oftentimes they can still be very angry but still have this smile on their face so I love how she incorporated that into the story. This is a slow burn mystery that explores how well we truly know other people. I believe that Angie Kim is the mother of a special needs child herself. And so she's really coming from a firsthand experience as she explores how our society tends to equate verbal speech with intelligence Despite well intentions, I think that we can easily dismiss nonverbal, yet very brilliant individuals. And I have experienced this firsthand too. I used to work at an adult hospital with people that had just had strokes that left them nonverbal. They could still understand everything, they just couldn't speak about it. So that aspect of the story really resonated with me. The audiobook was also unique because it included a non oral speaker who was able to read words. So he couldn't spontaneously speak. But if you put words in front of him, he could read them. And so he narrated Eugene's portions of the story, which were small in comparison to the main narrator. But I thought that was really thoughtful to incorporate a narrator like that. Overall, I thought this was so well done. That was Happiness Falls by Angie Kim. The other thing that I think is interesting about that syndrome is that
0: because somebody's smiling all the time, they're often smiling at an inappropriate time. And mm-hmm. so people misunderstand that response.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. And it's just an interesting aspect of that syndrome that you wouldn't consider, really. It's it's very unique. And
0: I thought she handled that well and kind of brought that to the forefront so you could understand it better. Mm-hmm. I think so. Okay, so I have another one that's going in a very different direction. Okay. And that is Starter Villain by John Scalzi. So I don't read much sci-fi, and he kind of classifies himself as like beginner sci-fi, which I think is a great way to classify it. But I loved this book, and I loved his last book as well. So I definitely highly recommend trying them if they sound at all appealing. So his latest novel is an engaging and witty romp that stars Charlie Fitzer, an ex-journalist working as a substitute teacher who discovers that his estranged uncle has died and left him his supervillain business. Suddenly, Charlie is thrown into the world of comical James Bond-style villain societies, talking cats, laser death rays, dolphin labor disputes, a volcanic island lair, and lots of double and triple twists. The book is chock full of laugh-out-loud dialogue, as well as Scalzi's thoughts on modern-day billionaires and who was actually running the world, making this both an enjoyable but very thought-provoking read. It's a short book and I think it will appeal to a wide range of readers. It is just so much fun and really funny. Do not let the sci-fi designation keep you from reading it because I, I really guarantee that if you like creative stories or funny stories, then this book will be for you. The other thing is I am not a fan of the cover. I feel like that some people have been enjoying it, but other people worry that the whole, because it's a cat dressed in a suit, that a lot of people who aren't cat people are like, well, I don't want to read this book. It's about cats, but it's really not. That was me. <laughs> yes. And I think that's many people. Like I've seen that on Instagram a lot. I don't love the cover. I'm, I'm fine with cats. I mean, I'm not here nor there. We're dog people, but I mean, it doesn't matter to me either way, but the cats could really be any type of animal. It's just because James Bond uses cats as kind of the pet for all these evil villains that he brought the cats in, but they really could be anybody and it is not cat focused. It is really focused on the supervillain business and the talking hilariously striking dolphins and all these other things. So don't let the cat part of it throw you off if you're not a cat person, because it really doesn't have anything to do with cats. I mean, they could be any animal, but it is so much fun. And that is Starter Villain by John Scalzi.
1: Okay, that does sound quite odd, but I'm not here to judge because I loved Shark Heart. And so (laughs) I feel like that is how other readers might view, you know, Shark Heart when I talk about it. So I might give this a try. I think you should. It's just so
0: entertaining. And he said his mother-in-law, Beta, reads for him, and she is not a sci-fi person. So he says if she likes it and reads it and feels like it reads like, you know, fiction would versus kind of really getting out into the full-on sci-fi range that he has to tone stuff down so that she is always his target audience and make sure he keeps it real. I loved that. I thought it was so cute.
1: It's got to pass the mother-in-law test. Exactly. (laughs) That's great. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm going to go heavy again here. So (laughs) and I'll be at the (laughs) end going, that sounds
0: a little dark for (laughs) (laughs) me.
1: (laughs) This is Bright Young Women by Jessica Knoll. Bright Young Women is based on Ted Bundy's last killing spree at a Florida sorority. The title is taken from a judge who referred to Bundy as a quote unquote bright young man. I was equally horrified and fascinated by Bundy's multiple escapes from jail and the ways in which he charmed the public and members of the judicial system. So I don't follow true crime. I don't even really know much about Ted Bundy. So I went in completely blind and I was just baffled at how this all played out. This book is less about the heinous actions of the defendant, so they call him in the book. They actually never use his name intentionally. The story is more about the women who had the great misfortune of crossing paths with this notorious serial killer. The story shines an unflinching light on the leniencies offered to Ted Bundy compared to the scrutiny that female victims and witnesses of his crimes were under. From the public, from the judicial system, it was just really unfair the way they were portrayed versus the serial killer who people were saying, oh, he's so handsome. He's so charming. They were just under his spell. This is a really lengthy, character-driven story, but one that I was always eager to get back to. It's not gory or gratuitous. It's more of a celebration of the strength of the female spirit. And that was Bright Young Women by Jessica Knoll.
0: Okay, I'm going to surprise you here. Oh, people keep raving about this one. And I recently posted in the Facebook group for the Patreon community, tell me your favorite read of October. And so many people said this book. So I'm thinking I may have to try it.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's kind of a closed door killing situation. So you hear about the aftermath of it, but you're not in the room when these things are going down.
0: So I'll get back with you, but I may try it because person after person was like, oh, bright young women, bright young women. And I was like, oh, gosh, maybe I do need to try it. So I may. Yeah, it's a good feminist spin on things. And I'm going to cheat a little bit with my last one. Okay. Because we're not going to do October through December because there's not a ton coming out. And we're going to do our year end wrap up with our favorite reads of the year. And so we just felt like that was a lot of recording and hard to pull From that window of time when there wasn't so much. So I had one read that will be one of my top reads of the year. And so I'm sneaking it in as my last book, even though it's coming out at the end of October instead of in September. Okay, And that's The Berry Pickers by Amanda Peters. I hope I'm going to pronounce this right. But a Mi'kmaq family travels every summer from Nova Scotia to Maine to pick blueberries. And one summer, four-year-old Ruthie goes missing while they're there. Last seen by her six-year-old brother, Joe. Interspersed with their story is Norma's tale of growing up in a wealthy Maine household, overprotected by her parents with dreams of an earlier life that feel much more like memories. The story is not what happened to Ruthie because we know that she is Norma. Instead, it is a tale of trauma and how two families cope with the aftermath of Ruthie's abduction, as well as how secrets can destroy families. While The Berry Pickers is not a happy story, It is a beautiful and powerful one about grief and tragedy and the lifelong repercussions. I loved learning about blueberry picking in Maine, as well as the Mi'kmaq culture, and the sense of place is incredibly strong for both Maine and Nova Scotia. I think this book will appeal to readers who like character-driven stories, family sagas, or tales steeped in other cultures or locales. It really made me feel so many different emotions because I can't imagine having a four-year-old child that is just literally abducted off the side of the road and then for years not knowing what happens to them, like just trying to live with that. And I felt like Amanda really tapped into that. But also I liked learning about the culture and the families and trying to understand the other side of it for Norma, like how people could do that, like just take a child and, yeah. and you know, take it as their own. So I just felt like it was a very thought-provoking read. It was very interesting. I learned about it from Pamela Klingerhorn when she came on the show talking about fall reads. I hadn't seen it anywhere. And I posted about it, and then another number of other people read it and really enjoyed it. And now I started seeing it all over the place. I think it's getting all sorts of attention. So I was very glad to see that. And it's a stunning cover. And that's The Berry Pickers by Amanda Peters.
1: I thought that this was great, It is a Canadian debut author. And so all of my Canadian friends are so happy to support a Canadian author. And I thought this was just a a story that was so well told. I haven't heard this perspective before. And it was great.
0: It was. And all the berry picking, because his family, every summer, that would be their job. They'd come down and berry pick. And so it was interesting to learn about what that was like. And there was some confusion because the book was published in Canada in April and then it's just published here, October 31st. And so I think people were getting a little confused on Goodreads, like, oh, it's already been out. Is it a reprint? I'm like, no, it was published in Canada in April and here now. And the Canadian cover is not nearly as pretty as the U.S. cover. Oh, yep. Well, this was so much fun as always. And I know I've added a couple books to my list. And. We have a couple more conversations coming up. We're first going to talk about some of our favorite debut novels, and then we're going to do our wrap-up for best books of the year, which we're already going to have to be negotiating how many titles that is. (laughs) (laughs) Because my list right now is probably
1: like 40 books, and i would be like, okay, that's a little long for one episode. It's a marathon eight-hour episode, yeah. Exactly.
0: (laughs) Part two, part three.
1: (laughs) But thanks, as always, Kelly, for coming on. Thank you for having me. It was such a pleasure.
0: Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. I would love to connect with you on Instagram or Facebook, where you can find me at Thoughts From a Page. If you enjoy the show, please consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. If you have a moment to rate the show or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts, I would really appreciate it. It makes a big difference. And please tell all of your friends about Thoughts From a Page. Word of mouth does wonders to help the show grow. I hope you'll tune in next time.